No? Okay, cool. Great. Um, let me pray again briefly, just ask for God's help, and uh, we'll jump into our, uh, our, our scripture for it this morning. Father, we do come to your word, and we are hungry for it. Uh, we, we know that uh, we have a need uh, for wisdom that is outside of ourselves. We know uh, left to ourselves um, that, that we, we, we are not wise in and of ourselves, and so we need to hear from you. We need you to speak uh, to us, and we ask that you would help us to be humble and contrite, trembling under the authority of your word. Help me, God, to be uh, clear, faithful, and helpful. Uh, help uh, the hearers, Lord, that they would only receive things that are true and align with your word. Uh, anything else uh, would be disregarded. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Uh, we're in the series uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and what happens when we go, what happens when we preach through a book of the Bible, uh, that means that we encounter all sorts of topics. It means we encounter topics and things that are important, but things that are important that we would, in an, our own inclination, avoid. Uh, so we looked at a, a really strange uh, case uh, of, uh, of incest that was happening uh, in a church in chapter 5, and now we're going to look at another sort of uh, strange case of conflict within this, within this particular church. And this is the benefit of preaching through the Bible uh, books at a time, because we tackle everything that God speaks to, even the things that uh, maybe may not make for the easiest sermons to prepare uh, or the easiest sermons to hear, but have wisdom and help and grace and good news for us nonetheless, okay? And so we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to set the context for you. Maybe if you've not been here uh, for the series or you're a guest, uh, this is a church that was established uh, in the first century in the, the port city of Corinth, a globally diverse, uh, um, uh, highly populated, dense city. This was a city where people went to to make money. This is where a city that people went to to, uh, to train for, uh, for the Isthmus Games. This is the city where people went to, to, uh, to, to live out their very uh, deepest desires that they've kind of kept locked up, right? This is a city where really anything goes. Sophistication and intelligence is king, uh, bodily desires are king and queen, anything goes in this city. And yet in this city, the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection in our place for our sins was received by a group of people, and a church was birthed. But this church is struggling because they are walking and living in the wisdom of their city and their culture and their own personal wisdom rather than walking and living in the wisdom of Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul, who planted this church, who labored there for 18 months, writes this letter in the correspondence to them to help them understand what it looks like to follow Jesus in an age, in a city, in a culture, in a context that really thought all of that was foolish. And he's been speaking to them, instructing them, directing them, and he continues to do so here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes, this is God's word to Corinthians, God's word to us. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of to the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers and sisters." If I may start uh, by quoting a sage philosopher, uh, Bobby Brown from the boys group New Edition. He has a song called My Prerogative from his uh, 
Uh, seven times platinum album, Don't Be Cruel, that came out in 1988, uh, pioneered uh, modern music R&B sounds. And in this song, he sings this. He says, I don't need permission, make my own decisions. Oh, that's my prerogative. It's just the way I want to live. It's my prerogative. I just do what I want to feel. It's my prerogative. No one can tell me what to do. It's my... Okay, I'll stop there, okay? So song, My Prerogative. Huge hit. And the problem with the Corinthian church was that, even though Bobby Brown wasn't around at that time, this was their anthem. This was their jam. It's my prerogative. I can do what I want to do. It's within my rights to do what I'm going to do. We're later going to hear a saying from the Corinthian church that, that uh, happens later in this chapter, uh, that they say, all things are lawful for me. This idea that because Jesus gives us grace, anything is permissible, anything flies, anything goes, it's my prerogative. It's my right. It's my prerogative. I'm going to do what I want to do. Here in this text, we can catch it. It's a pretty straightforward passage. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church because the Corinthian church has a problem. Not only do they have divisions and infighting within their church, which we saw in chapter 1, 2, and 3, not only do they have strange, um, strange cases of, of, of sexual sin that even uh, uh, non-Christians of the time would not have accepted and tolerated, not only do they have that, they have lawsuits happening within the church. Notice, uh, uh, notice verse 2, these are lawsuits over trivial cases, right? Um, the Apostle Paul is, is not, this is not a passage that says Christians cannot uh, go to court and, and file lawsuits or anything of that nature. This is not what this passage says. We know the Apostle Paul himself goes, uh, files a complaint in law and goes to court in, 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 the, in the book of Acts. This is not saying that. There are, there are cases in which uh, things happen within the church and the authorities do need to be uh, reported to and, and things do need to go to court. But notice here in verse 2, it's trivial cases. These are small things. We, we can gather from the language of, of verses 7 and 8, this, this language of be wronged and be defrauded, that these were things revolving around money and property. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, you within the church, you are the family of God united through Jesus, and yet you within the church as the family of God are suing one another over small and trivial things. And you're doing this, he says, in front of the city, in front of non-believers. And so now the reputation of Jesus is being yet again drugged through the mud because we can't have our family business in order because we are so centered on my prerogative, my rights, my will, my way. The church of Corinth is infected with the my rights syndrome. And this is important for us to see because this emerges from the spiritual pride that is the, the, the root cause of every problem that is addressed within this letter. Later in this chapter, they're going to assert the idea of my rights, my prerogative. They're going to assert it into the, uh, the area of, of, of their body and what they do with their body. They're going to say, hey, it's my body. I can do with it as I please. And the Apostle Paul is going to say, no, you belong to Jesus now. They're, 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 it's not just you. It's not just your prerogative. It's now Christ's prerogative. It's not just your rights. It's what does the kingdom of God look like? What does true life and flourishing look like? But here they are centered on my rights, my prerogative, leading them to file lawsuits against another brother or sister in their church over what the apostle calls small, trivial things. Now, again, before we look at this and say, ooh, this is fascinating, but really this has nothing much to do with me, before we look at that, we have to understand the underlying cause of my prerogative, my rights, my will, my way emerges from pride, and again, 
The humility and wisdom uh, of, of, of being teachable shows us this, that there is nothing that we can look at in another person and despise and, and, and be repulsed by, and not also be aware to understand that the roots of that very thing lives also in us. The German theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this, nothing that we despise in others is inherently absent from ourselves. So the very root cause that leads the Corinthians to say, my rights, my way, my will, my prerogative, that leads them into lawsuits among one another, the very root of that, the very seed of that also lives inside of each and every one of us. And so we need the wisdom of God here in this text. But we must ask ourselves first this, how does it happen? How does it happen that Paul, the Apostle Paul goes to Corinth, preaches the good news of Jesus' grace and salvation, and a church is birthed? And then over some time, this church is birthed, this spiritual family moves from being a spiritual family to being a divided family where there are lawsuits against one another in the church. How in the world does this happen? So that we can learn, so that we can avoid, so that we won't let those seeds of pride, those seeds of Bobby Brownism, my prerogative that are in us, so we don't let those seeds grow and flourish and lead us to this end point. How does this happen? Well, the first way this happens is that we begin to mirror the city and the world around us. We begin to mirror the city and the world around us. We mirror the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God. That's how we move down this track. See, for the Corinthians, they were more shaped by the physical and uh, uh, cultural realities of living in Corinth rather than the spiritual reality that they were in Christ. They were more shaped by the reality of being a Corinthian than the reality of being a Christian. They were so shaped by their city, by their culture, by their own wisdom, by their own prerogative, that they brought the wisdom of Corinth into the church instead of bringing the wisdom of Jesus to the city of Corinth. And when that happens, they just handle problems and situations just like everybody else, which leads to lawsuits. One commentator puts it like this, Greeks were in fact famous or notorious for their love of going to the law. Not unnaturally, certain of the Greeks from within the Corinthian church brought their lawsuits tendencies into the church, and Paul was shocked. In other words, the habits of the, Corinth, of the, of the Christians in Corinthians to file lawsuits was in essence no different from their assimilation to Corinthian sexual laxity. The world was once again invading the church. So instead of being salt and light, instead of being a, a, a witness of a distinctive, beautiful, different, other-centered life, the Corinthians brought the wisdom of the city into the church, which led to division and lawsuits. Now, what is the value, the gut-level desire, the, the crowned ideal that drove these Corinthians, these particular ones in the congregation, to file lawsuit against one another over trivial cases? What, what was the ideal, the value that drove that action? It's the value that Corinth values. It's the value that Boston values. It's the value that Americans value. It's the value that we value. It is the supreme exaltation of self. Specifically, our rights. Look at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. 
the Apostle Paul is saying this, the fact that you are having a lawsuit already shows you're defeated, already shows you are so focused on yourself that you have already tarnished the reputation of Jesus. You've already lost. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be, rather be defrauded? Well, here's why. Here's how the Corinthians would respond to that question. Why not rather suffer wrong? Here's what they would say. Because I'm right. Why would I lose something if I know that I'm right? Why would I suffer wrong if it's within my rights to assert my rights? Why would I do that? The crown jewel, the ultimate value behind these lawsuits is my prerogative, my rights, my will, my way, my pride. The Corinthians were deeply confused, deeply arrogant, very much like the city around them, and the same cultural winds of temptation that are blowing up against them to say, it's my rights, my way, my prerogative, are the very same winds that blow against us and are the very same seeds that live within us. We don't need any training to know and to live primarily for ourselves, do we? We don't need any training in that. It lives within us. And so we need this text. We need the wisdom of God to help us decenter from my prerogative, my rights, my way, my will. I'm right. Let me assert myself. We need God's wisdom to teach us another way. Think of the goodness of God to include a passage of Scripture, a passage like this in Scripture. Don't we all know from experience the damage that comes to relationships, comes to churches, comes to communities when people insist on their rights and their prerogative? Haven't we all felt the damage that happens? Right? What happens in a a relationship where two people focus on what they are entitled to rather than what is best for everyone? Right? What happens in a church where one of the central values of its members is my rights, my way, my freedom, my prerogative? Right? Any relationship where there is a constant focus on my rights means you will have a constant culture of retaliation. Because think of what happens in a conflict. Someone gets wronged, and the person that gets wronged says, well, they wronged me. It's in, within my rights to wrong them. It's within my rights to to return that verbal jab. It's within my rights to say not only that I was hurt, yes, you should, but to then hurt them back, to return tit for tat, eye for eye. And so what you have when you focus on your rights is you will establish a culture of retaliation within your church, within your relationship, within your family, within your house, within your community. A spouse insults one other spouse with a mean comment. Well, it's within my rights to return that comment back with a little extra sauce on the side. Right? Two people within a community group right, get into a conflict after one person borrows someone's XYZ. They return it back a little bit damaged, and the person who was wrong says, well, it's within my rights to at least gossip about them a little bit. And we build a culture of retaliation because it is within our rights, we say. And so we need God's wisdom to help free us from this cycle of my rights, my way, my prerogative when conflict strikes. And here's how Paul is going to speak to that. So the first way we step into this conflict is we step into this problem by mirroring the world. And the second way that the Corinthians went wrong 
was not only by mirroring the world, but by forgetting who they were in Christ. Notice the strange verses that stood out to you, verses 2 through 4. Paul, in verse 1, says, You go to court over a small conflict within the church? You can imagine Paul, right? Whatever hair he has left, right, is coming out, right? His dread, whatever dreads he has left, right? He's pl- they're coming out. He, he is shocked. He is, he is grieved. He is hurt. He cannot believe what is happening within the church of Jesus. We're a family that follows a Savior who laid down his rights for us, and yet you guys are centering on your rights to the point that you're suing one another. How is this possible? Well, here's how it's possible. They're mirroring the wisdom of the world. And here's the second way that it's possible, our second point. They don't really know who they are in Christ. When we forget who we are in Christ, we will live exclusively for our rights. When we abandon who we are in Christ, we will live exclusively for my rights, for our rights. Well, it's within my rights to say this. They said this to me. Well, it's within my rights to gossip about them. They gossiped about me. Well, it's within my rights to take them to court. They dinged up my, 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 my Honda, right? It's within my rights to do all of these things within the church when we do not understand who we are in Jesus. And this is why Paul says this, verse 2, or do you not know? This is a repeated phrase throughout chapter 5, throughout chapter 6. The Apostle Paul constantly says, do you not know? Right? You can just see the exasperation on his face, the frustration, the holy frustration in his voice. Do you not know? He says here, do you not know that the saints, the believers made saints through Jesus, will judge the world? He goes on to say, do you not know you're going to judge angels? Now we hear this and say, well, Paul, are you confused? Right? Is this a is this that you've been beaten by, uh, by the Romans one too many times, right? Do you understand there's no angels involved in this lawsuit? It's just Corinthians, right? So, so we ask this question, Paul, what does what judging angels have to do with this beef of conflict within the church? Well, Paul is trying to show them something. Paul is trying to show them that when they forget who they are in Jesus, they will live exclusively for their rights, but when they remember who they are in Jesus, they will become peacemakers like Jesus. So he says, don't you know you're going to judge angels? Don't you know you're going to judge the world? Paul is pointing them to who they are in Jesus, but the Corinthians lost track of their core identity, and when you lose track of your core identity, you start to walk in core activity that doesn't fit with who you really are. And that's exactly what the Corinthians are doing here. So Paul reminds them in an odd way, he says, you're going to judge the world. What what does this mean? Well, here's what Paul is pointing to. There's a repeated phrase throughout, throughout Scripture, this idea of being in Christ, this, this idea, uh, this spiritual reality that through faith in Jesus, we become united to Him. Christians, anyone who trusts in Jesus for their salvation, Christians, disciples of Jesus, are so united to Jesus by faith that we share in His resurrection life and all of its effects. That we are so united to Jesus by faith that His death for our sin was our death. And His resurrection, we are so united to Him that His resurrection achieves for us eternal life. We raise like He will raise. We are so united to Jesus by faith that as He ascended into heaven in Acts 1, Ephesians 1 tells us that we too have ascended into heaven. We are so united to Jesus by faith that as He sits on the throne right now, According to Ephesians 1, there is a sense in which every single believer also is sitting with him on that throne right now, reigning and ruling. 
We are so united to Jesus that we will share in the glory of the new heavens and new earth when he returns, and we will also share in the work of judging the world. That's how united we are to Jesus. See, Paul's point here in these verses about, don't you know you're going to judge the world? He's saying this, don't you know you're in Jesus? Don't you know your identity in Christ, your future destiny in Christ? Don't you know that you belong to Jesus so deeply that it changes everything about you? Paul's idea is almost this. It's this idea that, don't you understand that because you're in Jesus, you're spiritually capable of judging a small conflict within your church because in Jesus, you are going to actually judge the world. It almost has this element of humor to it. Don't you understand that in Jesus, you're actually going to judge the very people that you're bringing this problem to? The people you're asking to judge your problem are actually the people that Jesus is going to judge in the end, and you're going to be right there in the back like this. Don't don't you understand? Don't you understand you are so tied up in Jesus that it changes everything about you? Think about this for a moment. The wonder and the glory and the grace and the love of Jesus That Jesus so changes the destiny of the Corinthians. He so changes the destiny in the interaction and the path of anyone who trusts in him that we move from being worthy of being judged by God to now participating and sitting from the seat of being the one on trial to now sitting next to the judge on the bench and reigning and ruling with him. That is how powerful the sacrifice of Jesus is when it intersects with the life of a sinner. That we move from being in the place of being judged to now sharing in the glory and the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. What mercy. What love. Can you imagine that happening in the courtroom today? Somebody comes in, I know it's my trial, here's my plan, I'm going to tell the judge this, I've been doing some volunteer work, right? The work is out, reduce the sentence, right? They come in and the judge is like, come here. Like, okay, this is going to be bad. Come here, here's the gavel, let me put this robe on you. Here's my water, all right. You're going to work with me for the day. You're going to work with me for the day. I've so changed your fate and your destiny and what you deserve that I'm inviting you to reign and to rule alongside of me. Not vindictively, but righteously. Not cruelly, but mercifully. I'm inviting you into this. Do you understand that's what Jesus has done for us? That's how much he has changed what we deserve. The Corinthians lost sight of that. And so because they lose sight of it, they don't think that they're capable. They don't understand that they're to walk in this. And so they say, we're going to bring this to the city to judge between you and me. So let me ask you this. Do you understand your identity in Jesus so significantly that the future that you have with Jesus intersects with your present and changes your default reactions? Does heaven show up in the way that you live on earth? Think also about this. If you know you have the new heavens and new earth as your inheritance, why do you care about 200, 300 bucks that got stolen from you from this person at community group? Does your future identity in Jesus intersect with how you live here and now? For the Corinthians, it didn't. For us, it's a struggle, but it's an invitation to fullness. Let me show you The second thing that the Corinthians didn't see, Paul says this, is there no one wise among you? Paul's also saying, was there nobody within your church 
Was there nobody within your community with the spiritual wisdom, the patience, and the maturity that could have talked you two through this problem? Was there nobody, was there nobody available to pray for you guys? Was there nobody there to say, hey, let's, let, let's settle down a little bit. Let's hear one another out. Let's right this wrong. Let's make retribution and see if we can extend forgiveness. Was there, was there no one available or you just had to bring it to the city and to the court over a small thing, just like you would have if you never had met Jesus? Paul is showing us when we forget who we are in Christ, we will only live for our rights. But when we remember who we are in Christ, we will become peacemakers like Jesus. Now, when we hear peacemaking, I don't know about you, but we might often default to, we might often default to this idea that a peacemaker is really somebody who just appeases. A peacemaker is really somebody who kind of glosses over conflict. It says, you know, when they're wrong, they say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. No problem, right? But deep inside, they're super hurt and they're super bitter. They say, oh, it's, all, it's, it's no big deal. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That's not what Paul is encouraging here. Paul wants there to be honest talk and retribution, but he wants it to happen within the body rather than over a small thing, having to go to the city and making Jesus' name look horrible in the process. So what does it look like to really be a peacemaker, right? To seek peace, to, to do what the apostle is saying here, it doesn't mean that we deny the conflict, but it means solving the conflict that isn't completely exclusively centered on you. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. See, when you get into a conflict and the only thing that you think about in the conflict is you, my rights, my way, my prerogative, you hurt me, I will hurt you back. You wronged me, I want my payment back. When that is the only thing that you consider in a conflict, you will not reflect Christ and you will build a culture of retaliation. But when we see who we are in Jesus, that Jesus has changed us, that Jesus gives us his spirit, that Jesus establishes a new way and a new ethic within us, we become peacemakers. Not peacemakers who deny conflict, not peacemakers who say, oh no, it's okay, please do that again, that, that was great. We don't become like that. We become peacemakers who truly deal with conflict, who truly make retribution, but seek to restore relationships in the process. So what does it mean to be a peacemaker? We experience conflict, right? Some of us are going through conflict right now. You may be hearing this and you have a conflict with somebody across the aisle. You're like, I just filed a paper for a lawsuit against that person. How timely, right? So we experience conflict within our, within our, uh, our relationships with our roommates, within our, 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 our co-relationship with our co-workers, obviously within our church, uh, within our marriages, right? We experience conflict. So what does it look like to be a peacemaker, to do the opposite of the Corinthians, to decenter from my way, my will, my prerogative, and then to remember who we are in Christ and to live out of that? That's the fundamental problem of the Corinthians. We saw it last week. What does it look like then to center in Christ, to remember who I am in Christ, that Christ has saved me, that Christ has bought me, that Christ has given me His Spirit, that I am actually capable of solving conflict in a Christ-centered way because guess who lives in me? Christ. And guess who lives in the person that I have a problem with? Christ. So there's Christ in them and Christ in me. Surely we can figure this out. And if Christ in me and Christ in them can't figure this out, let's get Christ in her to come over and mediate, right? But the Corinthians didn't understand that. They just mirrored the world. They forgot who they were in Christ. So what does it look like to be a peacemaker? Well, think about this. If you're going to be a peacemaker, you need a new outlook, you need a new attitude, and you need new actions. This weekend, something's happening in our city. Does anyone know what it is? 
Nope, Celtics playoffs at 1, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern. You are horrible people. Um, no, what's happening this weekend? The what? The marathon, right? Big deal. Uh, big deal. Runners have my utmost respect. One day I thought I was going to be a runner and ran from my car to the gym uh, in a full sprint. Uh, it was about a three-minute run, and that was it. That was it. And I realized that running is not in my future. Uh, I got to the door. I was like, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought. You know, you see runners through the city and Davis, and they move so slow. You think I could, you know, I guess maybe just me. I think I could do that. I could definitely do that. I could jog for three hours, you know. And then you, you try it, and you realize it's not possible. And, and to become a runner, to become a runner, I have utmost respect for runners. To, because to become a runner, I've realized that the reasons I could never do that and would never want to do that, but it's because of my outlook. I realize in, 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 from my vantage point, uh, running, you are competing against yourself. And that takes a certain level of mental discipline, not even to mention the physical discipline, that just, let me just tell you, does not belong here. It is not here. And I don't, so I don't have the outlook. But I imagine developing as a runner, and the runners will correct me after this, uh, be gentle, but I imagine developing as a runner requires a new outlook on what it means to have mental toughness, on what it means to endure, on what it means to achieve goals, what it means to pace yourself, what it means to exert yourself. There's a new outlook that is shaping in the mind, and that new outlook leads to a new attitude, right? That, that this is possible. I can do this. And that new outlook informs a new attitude, which then informs new actions, namely running. It's the same thing for a peacemaker. If we are to avoid the pitfalls and the traps that the my prerogative, my way, my pride seeds have in each of our hearts, and trust me, they are there, if we are to avoid those and become peacemakers like Jesus within the church and within our relationships, we need a new outlook, we need a new attitude, and we need new actions. The new outlook that we need is this, that conflict is not an arena in which to assert your rights, but it is a, an arena in which to glorify God. Conflict is not an arena in which, in which you are aiming to win a battle. Conflict is an arena in which you are seeking to glorify Jesus through this problem that has happened. You need a new outlook on conflict. Some of you think conflict is a battle that you come into and you must win. So you come in with your shield, you come in with your Thor hammer, and you come in ready. And in your trail, you have relationships that are just damaged and scarred. You need a new outlook on conflict. But not only do you need a new outlook on conflict, you need a new attitude. You need the attitude of Christ. You need the attitude of Philippians 2 that says this, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The Corinthians were so Corinthian that they forgot what it meant to be Christian. They forgot what it meant to follow Christ, who lays down his rights for us who looks not only to what's good for him, but what is good for all of us. And then he walks in that. Is your attitude and your outlook on conflict, is it more Corinthian? Is it more shaped by the wisdom of Corinth or by the wisdom of Christ? We need a new outlook and a new attitude. We also need new actions. I want to give you three, uh, three things. This is actually from a, a uh, a writer and counselor named Ken Sandy who wrote a book called The Peacemaker. Uh, if you want to look into more of this, it's, it's pretty helpful. He gives three actions of a peacemaker in Christ that, that flow from God's grace. He says this, uh, first action is overlooking an offense. 
Many disputes are so insignificant, he says, that they should be resolved by quietly overlooking an offense. Proverbs 19.11 says this, good sense makes one slow to anger, just as God is slow to anger. And it is the glory of this person to overlook an offense. Sandy says this, overlooking an offense is a form of forgiveness. It involves a deliberate decision to not talk about it, to not dwell on it, and not let it grow into pent-up bitterness or anger. What a challenge to us. Who here hears that and does not feel challenged? I feel deeply challenged just reading that to you. To overlook an offense is a sign of God's grace in you, extending forgiveness the way God extends forgiveness to us. Do you know how many offenses God the Father overlooks each day in His mercy and grace? He does not immediately give us what we deserve, but forbears our offenses, Romans 3 says. He, 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 he is patient with them, giving time for repentance and grace to be received through Christ. The first action of a peacemaker is overlooking an offense the way the Father does. The second is reconciliation. If an offense is too serious to overlook, again, right, Paul, I don't want us to think and look at this and say, oh, now, now we just say everything is okay or we don't, you don't want anything. No, he's talking, this is about small matters. But if a matter is not small, we look to re- reconciliation. Sandy writes this, if an offense is too serious to overlook or has damaged our relationship, we need to resolve personal or relation, relational issues through honest talk, confession, and loving correction and forgiveness. Quotes from Matthew 5, Jesus says, if your brother or sister has sinned against you, right, and he gives the steps and he says, seek reconciliation. So if a, a matter is, is, is not something that you can't overlook, right, Paul is not calling us to overlook everything. But if a matter needs to be dealt with, you go and deal with it honestly. We cannot be peacemakers if we will not be honest about what hurts us. We cannot be peacemakers if we will not be clear in communicating, this hurt me, this wronged me. We have to communicate clearly in order to move down the line in the steps of reconciliation. So two actions, overlooking, seeking reconciliation. But here's the problem. Most of us have some defaults that make this incredibly difficult for us to do. Here are two defaults that Sandy uh, uh, articulates as ways in which we, uh, we deal with problems uh, in an unhealthy manner. Uh, one default is we are escapers when conflict comes. Who can resonate with that? When conflict comes, you just run the other way, right? Deny, flee, withdraw. No, that didn't hurt me that much. I'll just never speak to you again. Oh, that didn't hurt you? How come you haven't talked to me the last six hours? My mouth is dry. It just very thirsty, right? right? So, so we'll come up with all sorts of ways. This is what I do to my wife, who's very forbearing with me. I just kind of shut down. Like, Are you there? No, I'm not, right? So, so some of us have a default. When conflict happens, we will escape. We will withdraw. We will, we will deny. No, it didn't hurt me. And, and we will flee. We'll deny it while scheming within ourselves ways in which to get back at them. The other default that we have when conflict comes uh, is to attack, verbal attack right? You wrong me, it's within my rights to wrong you back. You hurt me, let me insult you back, right? Litigation, the the Corinthians, physical attack, or God forbid, murder, right? We forget that crimes come in these ways because of conflict. People don't know how to handle conflict. So are you an escaper? Are you an attacker? What does God need to uproot from within you? Are your actions in conflict, your attitude, your outlook, and your actions Are they more shaped by the wisdom of the Corinthians, the wisdom of my prerogative, the wisdom of my rights, or are they shaped by the wisdom and the grace of Jesus? And Paul says, you Corinthians, at the end of the day, 
why not just be wronged? Why not just lose the $150 and save the relationship? Why not just be wronged and keep your church intact? Why not live out the ethic of Jesus who said, turn the other cheek, and if someone takes your tunic for one mile, tell them, hey, you could take it another 15. Why not just follow in the steps of Jesus? Why do you feel you have to say, my rights, and win the battle when winning the battle means you lose everything else? Why? I mean, this is a hard call to follow, isn't it? And the reality is when we think about this, 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 this thing that Paul is calling us to, to look not only to our interests, but also to the interests of others, to say, not my prerogative, my rights, but my rights and your rights so that we would flourish and glorify God through this problem. When we look to live out what Jesus calls us to live out in those type of circumstances, the bare bones reality that we have to admit is that we do not have the power within ourselves to do that in any consistent way, shape, form, or fashion. It is just simply not inside of us left to ourselves. But with Christ, we can become peacemakers. In Christ, we can become people who look not only to our interests, but also to the interests of others. Because when we forget who we are in Christ, we will only live for our rights. But Jesus Christ did not forget us. Jesus Christ remembered us. And guess what that led him to do? It led him to lay down each and every privilege that he had in order to bring us peace with God. When Paul talks about look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, he is canonizing, he is lifting up, he is immortalizing the reality that Jesus Christ was driven by a love for other, a looking to the interests of other, so much so that every heavenly right that he owned, every heavenly uh, a privilege that he possessed, he held not tight to it, but he relinquished it in order to go to a sinner's death on our behalf. So as the Apostle Paul speaks of this in Corinthians 6, we are drawn back to uh, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul talks about Jesus so laid down his rights in order to seek what was good for his people that he became a baby. He laid down the privileges of heaven. Then he so wanted to seek what was good for us, his people, his world, that he not only laid down the privileges of heaven in order to incarnate in human flesh, but he laid down the very privileges of his life in order to die a death, even a death on a cross like a low, scumful criminal. That Christ is the ultimate peacemaker who forgets all of his rights in order to bring us ultimate restoration who goes to the cross and says, I will bear your sins. I will suffer wrong in my flesh. I will carry the weight of your guilt in order to restore you back to God the Father so that I can be with you and you can be my people. Christ is the ultimate peacemaker. God the Father is the ultimate peace seeker who sends his son to accomplish this work. Jesus is the ultimate peace accomplisher who achieves the work and willingly lays down these rights. And the Holy Spirit is the ultimate peace empowerer who lives within Christ to enable him to fulfill this work and then lives within us. So when we remember who we are in Jesus, we become peacemakers just like our Lord who won the way of peace for us, restoring us back to God. 
But when we forget who we are in Jesus, when we forget all that Christ has done for us, we just sing the Bobby Brown tune. It's my prerogative. It's my rights. It's my way. I was wrong, I'll wrong you back. You hurt me, cold shoulder. My rights, my way, my prerogative. Which do you want to mark your life? What do you think honors Jesus? What do you think strengthens his church? What do you think will bring flourishing to your relationships? What do you think will show off the kingdom of God? When we remember who we are in Christ and what he has done for us, we have the strength, the grace, and the help to walk as peacemakers, following in the footsteps of Jesus who laid down his life for us to bring us peace with God our Father. Let's take a moment to respond in silent prayer and reflection. I want to encourage you as you do this to ask God, this is a challenging passage for us, to ask God, God, what do you have for me from this text? Go to him in confession. Go to him in repentance. If you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, you're here and you're thinking through what you believe, you are welcome. We are glad you're here. I would encourage you, if you feel comfortable with this, to, to silently just ask God and say, God, if any of this is real, if this is true, what Jesus has done is our peacemaker, would you make this known and real to me? Let's take a moment to pray and reflect silently, and I'll lead us in prayer aloud.